Last week, Dave Calger preached about the glory departing from Israel. That was chapters 1 through 4. Israel was at a very dark place. And today we're going to pick up the narrative of Israel's history and how it maps on as God's word speaks not only to them, but to all people throughout all time, including us here this morning. And I just had an impression as I was preparing this message that some of you are in that Ichabod moment, that sense of where the glory has departed. And I believe that the Lord wants to meet you personally, maybe even as a church, and certainly as a nation as we seek the Lord uh, for the grace found in the scripture. So where I want to begin is just look over at chapter 4, verse 1. I want to draw your attention to a few things. You over there? 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. The second part after it says the word came uh, to all Israel. It says, now this. Now Israel, do you see that? Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. This was last week. They encamped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. Now flip over to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, remember they captured their Ark, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we pray that you would meet us. Meet us wherever we are, Lord, this morning. We're here to seek your face and to hear from you through your word. Lord, we pray that you would open up your word. Lord, you have warned us it's possible to hear, not understand, to see, not perceive. Lord, to have hearts that are hardened and that the word of God will not go down deep and bear fruit. And so, Lord, we pray by your spirit, you would soften our hearts to receive your word. Lord, you would lift our spirits and meet us in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, as was already prayed, is September 11th. It's the day that we remember the horrific attacks on our nation 15 years ago. The enemy struck us at the heart of our national identity. Uh, Their targets were very specific. They wanted to hit us at the Capitol, which failed. The Pentagon, I think we have a picture of the Pentagon attack there. And then two planes hit us at the World Trade Center, hitting the twin towers. 2,977 U.S. citizens died on that day 15 years ago. The Twin Towers of New York City have been called and remembered throughout our nation as Ground Zero. This was Ground Zero, the center of where the enemy hit us and attacked us and undermined our sense of security. Ground Zero. And as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7, we're getting a glimpse of ground zero for Israel. The enemy has attacked them at the very center of their national identity. 43,000 men died 
It's over 14 times those that perished in 9-11. And remember, their nation was much smaller than ours. They struck at the heart of their identity. They captured the ark of God. Remember, the Israelites had this idea. Wait, we lost. Let's go get the ark. That'll make us win. They go into battle. The priests are carrying it, Phineas and Hophni. Not only do they lose terribly, the ark is captured. Their priests are killed. And then we learn later that Shiloh itself is decimated. It becomes desolate. Now, Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle stood. That's where Eli and the priests were offering up sacrifices. It was basically before Jerusalem, there was Shiloh. It was the center. It was the Washington, D.C. of Israel. The tabernacle was there for 369 years. Our nation is only 240 years. Think about that. The center of their worship, it's 129 years older than we've even existed, was laid desolate. Their leaders are wiped out, Hophni, Phinehas. Eli catches, hears the word that the ark has been stolen. He falls over, breaks his neck, and dies. His daughter-in-law, pregnant with Phineas's child, son, the hope of the continuation of the priesthood, she dies in childbirth, just in time to name her son Ichabod. The glory has departed. It's a low point. It is a low point, and Ebenezer marks ground zero for Israel. Did you notice that in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, we see that at Ebenezer, they are wiped out. At Ebenezer, the ark, see chapter 5, verse 2, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They set up the, the ark of the covenant. I mean, this is like stealing our constitution, like our identity as a nation, and putting it next to their false god. Ebenezer is ground zero for Israel, which is why it makes it all the more surprising When you go to chapter 7, flip with me now, chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, and notice the great turnaround that occurs for Israel. There's a battle, and Samuel's offering up the burnt offering. You see that in verse 10 between the Philistines? And listen, it says, The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out before Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Verse 12. Then Samuel took up a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means the Lord is our help or the stone of help. And it's at the point of Ebenezer, the very place where hopes go to die, where dreams are destroyed, where a sense of your national or personal identity is destroyed by the enemy, that God became the help. And a pillar was raised in remembrance of the help of the Lord. How did Israel go from a point of darkness and despair to this point of glory 
and God's help. The hand of the Lord is against them. Now the hand of God has helped them. How did they get there? That's chapters 5, 6, and 7. And that's the subject of our sermon. And as we look at how God has helped them, I believe that God wants to help some of you, all of us really, by the grace of God found in this passage. So let's backpedal here a little bit and see what happens in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then we're going to discover in this sermon five ways God can help us at ground zero. So flip over to chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to read this word for word because this would be a really long sermon. So I'm going to summarize. We're going to fly over this. And then we're going to mine chapter 7 because chapter 7 is where the great reversal, the great turnaround occurs. So chapter 5 is essentially telling the story where the ark is set up next to Dagon. And in there, in that temple, Dagon falls over. And the priests see that. You can hold your space. Check my work to make sure I got this right, but I'm going to make this faster for us. Falls over. They said, that's odd. So they lift him back up. Next day, he falls over again, except his hands, his arms are lopped off. His head is lopped off. They go, ooh, maybe we made a mistake. <laughs> and all of a sudden, uh, the, the ark basically is in their, in their city there, and a great, uh, a great uh, what do you call it, boils break out against them, and mice take over the place, and a great panic breaks out all over, all over them. They have tumors, and people are dying left and right, and they realize maybe we have made a mistake. And so they get this idea. It's in Ashdod right now. That's where Dagon's temple is. They say, let's send it over to Gath. And Gath is another Philistine temp, uh, area. So they send the, the ark over to Gath. Same thing happens. Tumors break out. Mice break out. People are dying left and right. They say, the people in Gath say, get rid of the ark. So they say, let's take it over to Ekron, which is another Philistine territory. They're not getting the idea yet, right? In Ekron, tumors break out, mice break out, lots of people die, panic breaks out. They realize, we got to get rid of this ark. We can't handle the presence of God in the enemy's camp. And so they pull together their spiritual leaders and say, what should we do with the ark of God, the ark of Israel? Because his hand is heavy against us. And the religious leaders say the following. They say, let's try a test. Let's test and make sure this is not a coincidence. So they say, let's build a new cart. Let's put the ark on it. Let's get two cows that have never had been harnessed before, never been yoked before, milking cows, and let's attach the, the cart to them. And let's lock up their babies, the calves, back home. And if these cows go back to Israel with the ark, we're going to know that this was the Lord. If they go back to their babies, it was just a coincidence. So they hatch this plan, and they, they even decide to send some gold with it as a, as a guilt offering, basically saying, we're guilty, we were wrong. They make them the shapes of the tumors and mice, basically as a symbol, like, take this out of our camp. And uh, they, they send them with great wealth on this cart. And you know what the cows do? They beeline it right back to Israel. Make a straight line, never turning to the left or the right. They're lowing the whole way, mowing, probably because their kids, their children are back home hungry. But they are controlled by the hand of God himself to go right back to Israel with the ark. Now the Israelites see the ark and they rejoice. They're super happy. So now chapter 6 was where the religious leaders gave them this point. And now at the end of it, the ark is going back in verse Verses 19 and 20, you'll see they take the, the, uh, the cart, they break it up, they make a fire, they sacrifice the cows, they give thanks to God, 
And then they make this mistake. They check out the ark and they actually open it up to see what's inside or if everything's okay. And 70 people are smitten by the Lord. Look at verse 20. This is the cry of Israel at this point. They say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? The Philistines can't stand before the Lord God. We can't stand before the Lord God. He's holy. Who? And they're overwhelmed with the presence of God. And so they asked Kiriath-Jerim to take it away from them, another tribe of Israel. And so they come up with their priests. They take the ark of God to Kiriath-Jerim. And the ark sits there for 60 years until King David, who's anointed first it's Saul, then David, remember, you'll get there. David says, let's go and bring it back. And eventually it finds its way to Jerusalem. But that is where the ark is left. That's the story of the journey of the ark of God back into the camp of Israel. But now we enter chapter 7. And Samuel reemerges. Remember, Samuel was the, the, the miracle child prayed for by his mother. The child that grew up in the temple of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And they were not doing a good job. But Samuel listened, heard the voice of God. He was identified as a prophet at a very early age. In fact, God spoke to him and told him that Hophni and Phinehas would be killed and so forth. That they would be cut off. And Eli said, if it's the will of the Lord, so let it be. Samuel reemerges and we get a picture of what Samuel has been doing for the last 20 years. Years. Turn to chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerum, do you see that? A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. For 20 years, Samuel is traveling from village to village, from tribe to tribe in Israel, not unlike John the Baptist or Jesus and the apostles, preaching a message of repentance and renewal and restoration. At this point, he's not their judge. He's just a prophet roaming around preaching a message. Get rid of the gods. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. He will deliver you. He will deliver us. But we must seek him. And from this point, we see the steps that they take as a nation, both personally, nationally, and really as a church, the people of God at that day to restore themselves and come to the Lord. And through that, we see at the end of chapter 7 where we looked, God's help. That God's hand moved from being against them to for them. So what we're going to do is mine out this chapter, chapter 7, and see what preceded this great turnaround. What caused the hand of the Lord to turn towards them in their defense? How will they... And how will we find God's help? The Ebenezer, the stone of God's help. How will we find deliverance and turn to the Lord with all our heart? The first point we see in chapter 7 is to find God's help at ground zero. We need to put away spiritual counterfeits. Put away spiritual counterfeits. 
We saw that at the beginning of Samuel's message as he traveled around to the various tribes. He said, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you. Verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth. If you want to discover and find God's help, you need to go to God for your help. Israel was not unlike us. They wanted God, but they wanted other things too. And they wanted to hedge their bets at times. They wanted to make sure we'll worship the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we've come into this land and other people seem to think other things work for them. And we will incorporate them, you know, we'll just kind of mix them in with our spirituality. And every time they did that, it failed. In fact, isn't that really what their enemy did to the Philistines? They didn't take the ark and say, we got the ark, let's destroy it. And they said, let's put it in our temple. We got two gods now. Awesome, right? Wrong. In fact, the story, let's go back to chapter 5. I want to show you this. Chapter 5. Remember what happens when God is put next to Dagon? Look at verse 4. So you're in chapter 5, verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 4. When they rose early on the next morning, this is the priests, behold, Dagon had fallen down faceward, fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off. What does God want us to know about Dagon? He has no hands. He has no eyes, no mouth. He can't speak, he can't hear, and he can't do a thing. But the Lord God has the hands, not Dagon. In fact, you'll find this. Now, let's, let's journey. Follow me. You ready? You got your Bibles? We're going to do a little lifting right now. Look at verse 6. You ready? The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. Now, the end of verse 7. His hand, do you see that? His hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. All right, jump down to the end of verse 11. Are you moving with me? The hand of God was very heavy there. Chapter 6, verse 3. His hand, do you see that? The end of verse 3. His hand does not turn away from you. Verse 5, when they're saying, let's get rid of the ark, he says, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you. The hand of God. Listen, we cannot worship any other spiritual counterfeits. The best they are are handless gods that can do nothing. And that the worst that they are, they invite the hand of God to oppose you. And they invite the hand of the enemy to attack you. Because sometimes the hand of God will oppose you simply by giving you over to the hand of your enemy that the protection of God is removed and the hands of others takes a hold of you. And yet, the victory, now go to chapter 7, chapter 7, remember, where they raised the Ebenezer? Let's look at this. After they were subdued, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And look, And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. 
The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. See that? The hand of their enemy. There was peace between Israel and the Amorites. God wants us to know whose hands really matter in your life. The hand of God. We sang about it. We said, all of our hopes... All of our life, all of our dreams are in your hands, God. If you want to experience the hand of God to help you, look at your life. What are those things that you are looking to beside the Lord God for your help? God will take no competition. They're handless. They won't help you. Get rid of them. Get rid of spiritual counterfeits. Secondly, how will you find God's help at ground zero? They put away spiritual counterfeits and they serve the Lord exclusively. We must serve the Lord, this last part's important, exclusively. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. It said, put away the foreign gods. See that? And the astroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. So listen, the first point, in sanctification, which is where we grow to be more Christ-like, we always, we always have two sides of that. There's a side that we put things to death in our life. We chop it off. We put to death what's earthly in you, Right? And then there's the side where you put, bring to life. You vivify. You, you, it comes alive. So this is mortification as the old Puritan term. You know, you kill it. You kill your flesh. You know, it's been crucified with Christ. But there's a side where you say, yeah, but that's the put off. What do I put on? Get rid of the false gods. Get rid of the spiritual counterfeits and serve the Lord only. Serve the Lord exclusively. And Jesus told us clearly, You can't serve two masters, or three or four, by the way. You'll either love one or hate the other. And he says, listen, you can't serve God and money, or your job, or your wife. We serve our wives, but we serve the Lord to serve our wives, right? here's, Here's the point. God is the center, right? And we serve the Lord, and all the other things in life exist to glorify him. And the moment those other things go into the middle, my job, which is a good thing, my kids, baseball, whatever, you know, those things, and God goes to this side of it, boom, we're out of whack. Because you were created to live for God and to glorify God and to serve Him. And all these opportunities around here are good things used to worship Him. Like money. We just took up an offering. You can use your money for great good in the world. Or you can serve it and be enslaved to it the rest of your life. Money makes a great servant, but a terrible master. And that's true of everything in our lives. And the Lord says, if you're turning to me with your whole heart, serve me. Serve me exclusively. Serve me only. We sang about that in another song. I love how the Holy Spirit brings us together because I didn't prepare any of that. But listen to the words we sang in this song. It says, it's your breath in our lungs. 
So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise to you only. Do you remember that word we sang? It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. The, the breath in your lungs, the blood that's pumping through your heart, it's borrowed from God. And listen, God doesn't need your service, by the way. We don't serve God as though he needed anything, Paul warns the Athenians in Mars Hill. He says, listen, in him we live and move and have our beings. God is not a needy God. We don't serve God because he needs us. We serve God because we need him. And when Israel got that wrong, when they said, hey, let's go to battle, and they're living with all these false gods, however they want, and they lose, and they say, maybe we should seek God and bring him into this, like a tack-on add-on at the end, they got decimated because they thought God was simply their servant, their genie, their good luck charm. At the end of the day, if nothing else works, maybe God will work. Wrong. You don't end with God. You start with him. We serve God only. Thirdly, how will you find God's help at ground zero? We humble ourselves. Humble yourself before the Lord. Verses 5 and 6. See verse 5? Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord God and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This is the first time he's pulled them together for corporate repentance. So remember before, he was basically traveling around telling, get rid of your gods, serve the Lord, get rid of your gods. Finally, he's built up enough critical mass and momentum where they say, this is right. And they come all together as one people. And they pour out water, signifying they're pouring out their hearts before God, that they need his cleansing, the washing away. It's sort of like our baptism where it represents we need to be cleansed. And it's found in God. It's found specifically in Christ. And they confess their sins before him and they fast before him. What are they doing? They're humbling themselves before the Lord. They're saying, we have blown it. We have gone wrong. We are wrong. We've gone the wrong way. And God, we need you. When we confess our sins to one another and to God, we're just saying, we're agreeing with God. We're sinners. And God, we need your mercy and we need your help. And this sounds very simple, doesn't it, in one sense? That's what we are as Christians. We just confess our sins. We're, we're forgiven sinners. And yet, if we're honest, there's always a Pharisee tendency in every one of us and in the church throughout every generation where we know theologically we're sinners, but really it's all those people that aren't on church on Sunday that are the real, you know, the real sinners. And we're here. I'm preaching to the choir, right? Well, listen. He's not preaching to the Philistines. He's preaching to Israel. And he's saying we're sinners. This is why Jesus gave us such powerful stories to the religious people. Because there's this religious impulse to be hypocritical. This religious impulse. He gave the story, remember, in Luke 18, where he says, two people went to the synagogue to pray, and one said, God, I thank you. He's the religious guy, the Pharisee. Thank you that I read my Bible, and I pray, and I tithe, and I fast, and... Thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector. He's really bad. <laughs> Thank you that I'm so good. I'm 
We spiritualize it. Thank you that your grace has kept me from being him, you know? And the, the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Won't even look up. He's so humbled at his broken state of depravity. He sees his sin. He sees the Romans 7. I don't do what I want to. What I do, I don't. God, I need your mercy. And Jesus says, that's the man that went home justified before God. That's the man who went home right with God. That's the man that experienced God's help. Because listen, we've heard it a thousand times, but let me remind us, God opposes the who? The proud. But he gives grace to who? The humble. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. It's just another way of saying God's hand is against the proud. His hand is for the humble. If you want to feel the wind of God to your back, if you want to experience God's help in your time of need, acknowledge that you need him. And listen, sometimes I believe that the Lord allows us to go to these places so that we're, we're reminded that we need him, right? Because it's in the times of desperation where we turn to God again and say, Lord, it's out of my hands. I thought I had control of this, but I realized the world doesn't revolve around me. That I can play my hands, but you deal it. I have some freedom, but listen, if you want God to deal you a good hand, humble yourself. Everything you have has come from him. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge, stay that way. Live that way until you go to glory. We never get out of Romans 7 in this world. There's victory in the spirit of God. I'm not undermining that, but I'm just saying there will always be a battle between our sin and the Holy Spirit, and we need to stay humble if we want to receive God's help. They humbled themselves before the Lord. And there's some here this morning at the end of my sermon, I believe that the Lord wants you to humble yourself and acknowledge your need for him so that he can help you. Really, it's all of us. I mean, we could all come forward, myself included, but some specifically, I believe, here today, the Lord is speaking to you. You need to humble yourself and acknowledge it before him. Fourthly, anticipate backlash from the enemy. This comes out of verse 7. Anticipate backlash from the enemy. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So look back up here. What's happening? They all gathered together. They're there for corporate repentance, renewal, recommitting themselves to the Lord. They're doing all these spiritual ceremonies saying, I'm getting, we're getting our lives right with God. And the Philistines see it, and they don't like it. And they come right after them. And now listen, when you try to get your life right with God, you need to anticipate that the devil will come after you. If this church wants to prosper and grow, I heard it earlier, Lord, renew us, change us. If you really start to experience victory, anticipate the attack from the devil. Because there's nothing that he hates more than spiritual renewal and spiritual life. We pray about it often in first priority. The devil doesn't like that we're in 200 public schools. The devil doesn't like that we're reaching thousands of kids. Last year, over 3,900 kids gave their lives to Christ. There's no one with a bigger bullseye probably on our chest than guys like us that are taking the gospel into some of these very, very dark places. 
And the same is true for you and for all of us. If we're going to do damage for the Lord, we need to be able to take a hit for the Lord as well and expect to put on the whole armor of God and to stand our ground and to not be, not be surprised when you start to get your life right with the Lord. And you say, listen, I did, I repented. I started seeking the Lord and things aren't turning around. I'm afraid. It's now what happened. They were fearful. If this is Christianity, I'm done. You're not done. Stand your ground. Clothe yourself with the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the gospel, the shield of salvation, the sword of the spirits, the word of God, and stand your ground because God's about to bring about a victory in your life. And if you retreat too early, you're going to miss it. But we need to anticipate. We prayed about it earlier. God is for you, not against you, but the enemy. There is an enemy of our souls, and he's looking to take you out. And these are the moments where his attention and all his hellish legions look to you. Because as long as you're worshiping other things, he's fine. It's the moment that he loses his grip on you that he'll come after you. Anticipate backlash from the enemy. And fifthly and finally... Look to your priest for victory. Look to your priest for victory. Verses 8 through 12. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, this is where we saw earlier, the Philistines drew near to attack for Israel, against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, the stone of help. They're at this moment of fear. They're at this moment of onslaught from the enemy. And what do they do? Remember what they did before. They ran out before God and then they brought him in as an afterthought. This time they turn to their righteous and holy priest and they say, pray for us. Help us. And he says, I will. And he prays for them and he sacrifices for them and God fights on their behalf. They look to their priest for victory. Now, you guys are a good Baptist church here, right? It's in your name. You say, we don't have priests, Stephen. <laughs> yes, you do. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is your great high priest. He's not only your priest, he's also your sacrifice. He's not only your sacrifice, he's also your prophet and your judge. And everything that Samuel pointed forward to and embodied imperfectly as a shadow, Christ is the fulfillment. And when we're in that moment of battle, we look to Jesus and we don't simply pray to Jesus. Jesus prays for you. Amen. I am so glad that I can pray to Jesus, but you know what I'm even more grateful for? That he's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for me. And that when I cry out to God, Jesus is there 
Say, I sacrifice myself for you and for you and for everyone who looks to me, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. He will be your help. Jesus is our help. Jesus, listen church, Jesus is our Ebenezer. On a hill called the skull, where the sun did not shine and dreams went to die and the enemies of God killed the Son of God. The author of life died. A stone was moved on Sunday morning. A stone of help and resurrection and light broke through the very place where dreams go to die. Hope was born and risen and that is the Christian life. Listen, we have a theology of glory, but we don't get glory by going for glory. We get it through a a theology of suffering. If you want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, you pick up your cross and die. You lay down your life. You lose your life to find it. You die so life, life would be born. That is our hope, church, isn't it? Is that in the place that dreams go to die, Resurrection hope is birthed and born. And you may be in a place of darkness here this morning. Maybe it's been a place of darkness for months. Maybe years. 20 years Israel was in despair before light broke forth, before the peace and deliverance and shalom of God rested upon them again. They didn't have to wait 20 years. They put it off. And listen, you don't have to wait any longer. I want to invite the worship band back up. And also, I want to stand for a final worship song. So church, let's, let's all stand. We're going to invite some prayer counselors forward to the front. And I've spoken to you candidly. I I believe there are some here today that you're in a place where you say, I need the Lord's help. Now listen, for some of you, that's for salvation. You say, I need to be forgiven. I need to receive Christ for the first time. I need to know that my sins are washed away. I need to know that God's hand is for me and not against me. We want to invite you forward. But there's also some Christians here where you're just in a spot of darkness. You wonder if God is for you or against you. And he is for you if you're in Christ. And yet there's grace in humbling ourselves before the Lord to come forward. And it takes humility to acknowledge it and say, that's me. But I believe you're going to experience grace simply by humbling yourself and acknowledging that. And so I want to invite you forward. Come on forward. This is your chance to do that. If you'd like to receive prayer, either to receive Christ or you just need God's help in a dark time, come forward. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. While you come forward, I just want to read the lines, one of our famous hymns that we sing, Come Thou Fount. And I want to speak it over all of you who are coming forward. Thank you for your courage. Anybody else come forward. You know this. If you don't, I'm going to speak it over you. It's a hymn we sing. It's, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Thou, God, has brought me to this place. And I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger bought me with his precious blood. 
God has brought you to this place. And in that moment of Ebenezer, that despair, God will be your hope. I want to pray that over you, and then we're going to sing this final hymn. Father, I pray for each person coming forward, humbling themselves and saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. Just confess your sin. Say, Lord, help me to put out any counterfeits in my life in your own way. And say, Lord, I repent of these things. Come to him and say, Lord, my desire, I can't do it perfectly, but it's to serve you only. Lord, I don't want any competition. You don't want any competition. Lord, I come to you. I humble myself now. Help me stand against the attacks of the enemy. I look to you, Jesus. I'm looking to you, Jesus, now for my forgiveness, for my hope, for my help, for my peace, for my deliverance, for everything I need is found in Jesus Christ, my high priest. And I come to you and I declare Jesus is Lord. To the glory of you, God the Father, we pray in Jesus' name.